0: Greetings in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and this is the video series, The Biblical Principles Governing the Eyes. Uh, This is Lesson 3 of that series, and uh, we we want to talk about the principle behind the biblical principles which govern the eyes. First of all, it's important for me to say to you that what's What has been taught and will be taught in these lessons is a principle-based approach rather than a rule-based approach to the subject of the separated or the holy use of the eyes. Uh, I have not and will not in this entire video series say, do this, don't do this, watch this, don't watch this. I'm not going to do that. Why? Why? because that's between you and the Holy ghost and the word of God. So that's what I want you to understand right now. And that is that this is a principle based approach, not a rule based approach. Why is that important? Because Paul said it, uh, some things, some things are not a temptation to some people and they're, and they're a huge temptation to others. And, uh, I'm not supposed to compare what, what the, what the Spirit of God has convicted me of with what the Spirit of God has convicted you of. The doctrine does not change. The doctrine of holiness and its outward manifestation as separation. The doctrines of that does not change. But most of that doctrine is principle. And that principle is then applied by the Holy Ghost in our individual lives and that's called convictions. And convictions vary from people to people. Well, why can you do this and I can't do that? Or why can I do this and you can't do that? Because each one of us is different. Each one of us has different experiences, different pasts. Each one has a different memory bank in there. And so different things affect each one of us in a different way. Uh, I've never... Drank alcohol in my life. And my experiences of being around people that did, uh, created memory banks, uh, of, uh, someone, uh, uh throwing up, uh, beer that they'd overdrunk on, on a, a bus returning from the Army Navy game. The bus was overheated and this person was drunk. And because we had not been in a place where midshipmen were allowed to drink, and so we go to this away football game, which everybody was required to go to and had some Liberty afterwards and guys could drink in that situation. And they did. And, uh, and they over drank, and they got drunk and they're on this bus. That's hot riding two hours back, back home. They got sick. Excuse me for this vivid imagery, but this is my imagery. Here's my memory. And the smell of beer, going out the window, and thankfully most of it went out the window. Uh, the whole bus reeked with it, and any time I smell beer, that's my memory immediately. If I see a can of beer or smell that, that's exactly what my memory bank triggers. So I don't have any temptation. There's no temptation for me to drink any kind of beer. There's no such thing as good beer to me because those are my memories. And that completely turned me off from it. But somebody else may have had a completely, beer may be their favorite thing they've ever drunk in their whole life. So their memory and their temptation in one in that area may be completely different than my memory and my temptation. So therefore, the Lord doesn't have to give me a conviction, don't drink beer. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to give me a conviction that says, don't need to eat in any restaurant where they're serving beer. I've been on airplanes where the guy right next to me was drinking alcohol. Well, that doesn't bother me. I've got no interest in it because I have no positive memory bank that would make make me vulnerable to desiring to do that. So that's why convictions vary based on my past, on my memory bank. And so that's why Rules don't work. They don't work. Principles work because God can take principles and help me. Because if I do rules, what if I keep the rules, but those rules are not strong enough for me? What if, what if within the rules there are certain things that I'm allowed to do in the rules that lead me, that's an open door for me to go a path I, I don't need to go simply because the rules allow me to do that. And we all know how rules go. You can keep the letter of the rule while you're breaking the spirit of the rule. You can do that. For for instance, there's a speed limit. That speed limit says 50 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour or 65 miles an hour. There's no law that says how long it's supposed to take you to get from dead stop up to the speed limit. And yet, if I get out here at the highway and I get in my car and I just absolutely floor it, and I race off the line. Even if I don't go over the speed limit, I'm keeping the rule of the speed limit. But is that really the spirit of the speed limit? If I'm drag racing, if two of us are sitting at the light, and the light changes, and we drag race off the line, even though we don't go over the speed limit, we've kept the rule, we haven't kept the spirit of it. And so that's the problem with, with, with having rigid rules. It, 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 it opens, uh, rules actually open doors for those that know how to get around rules. And the problem is when you're keeping a rule, even though you're breaking the spirit of it, flesh will convince you, I'm okay. I'm doing everything the rule says. That's why some people, can be all separated looking on the outside and have dead men's bones on the inside. They're keeping the rule of separation, but they are filthy in here. And according to the word of God, we know that's not acceptable to God. It may be acceptable to the rule-based group that you're a part of, but it's not acceptable to God. It's not acceptable to God. So there's nothing in this study that's intended to be made a rule this is the biblical principles governing the eyes. It is my hope and prayer that as you study this lesson, the Holy Ghost will begin to formulate in your spirit some personal guidelines of how you will use your eyes in every scenario and circumstance of life from this point forward. Not just in how you use communication and or entertainment technology, but in every possible use of your eyes. Because if if uh, if our communication devices and or our entertainment technology is the only source of misuse of our eyes, then how in the world did anybody ever have a problem with their eyes before that stuff was invented? So those things are just a small area where we need to have principles that govern how we use our eyes with those things. We need these principles for life, for life. If I allow the Lord to guide me in using my eyes in a manner that will please him, then the follower are a few of the more significant results that are potentially mine by following his instructions and principles. I will see God. I will see my relationship with him grow into all that he has promised. I will see his power and glory manifested in the sanctuary. I will see a great harvest of souls. I will see the Lord when he returns. And I pray these things for you and me and the entire body of Christ in Jesus' name. We must never forget that the gift of sight that God has given us for good and to enrich our lives also has great potential for evil. So I just came from the blessing of governed sight, spiritually governed sight. We just talked about that. Now I need to come back and talk to you about the potential principle-wise of the negative use of our eyes. The following are a few verses that demonstrate some of the positive effects of having eyes which are guided and governed by the word of God. John fourteen nine says this, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Hast thou seen me? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? So Jesus says to Philip, you have been seeing me with your eyes, but you haven't seen me yet. You don't really know who I am. Your brain and your spirit have not really processed the truth of what you're seeing. Because the image that your brain is processing says to you, human being, man, But but the image that I want you to see goes beyond that processed uh, image of man. That image is what God is wanting to show you about me. So in other words, sight will lead to revelation. According to Jesus, sight will lead to revelation. Because If I allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to work in me, what I see naturally will then be interpreted by God to let me see what's really there spiritually. So I can see the benefit and the perils in what I'm seeing if I let God let me see not just with my natural eyes, but with my spiritual eyes. But that's exactly how the adversary works because he wants to be like God. He wants us to see what he wants us to see in what we're seeing. He wants us to see what there is to gain there. We'll see just how that works in a couple of minutes when we get there. Here's another place that we'll talk about in later lessons in this, uh, in this study. But let me tell you something right now. It's one of my favorite scriptures and one of the most challenging scriptures for me in all of the Bible. Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee, my soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and a thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Now, the word to see, the Hebrew word to see, and the word Hebrew word have seen in verse 2 is not the same word. And here we go again. That what your eyes see is not the same thing as what you see in your spirit. Natural sight and spiritual sight are not the same. Now negatively, natural sight can be used by the adversaries to produce uh, 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 a a negative spiritual sight. But only God can open our, our natural sight and give us spiritual insight into what we're seeing naturally. And so David prayed something very similar. He said, Uh you're my God. I'm sure church of you are pursuing you because I want to see thy power and thy glory, so as I've seen thee in the sanctuary. That second word have seen means to see in the spirit, to perceive or to see supernaturally. So it wasn't something he was seeing in manifestation. He was seeing what God is and how God is and what God is capable of doing in his spirit. But he prayed because he wanted to be able to see God's power and glory in manifestation where all could see. How powerful is that? Then another verse, John four thirty-five. Jesus said to the disciples, "Say not ye there are yet four months; then come at the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest." Now, in that setting, he was talking. It was at the uh, he had been talking to the woman at the well. The disciples returned from Sychar with food, master eat, and they looked at this woman and they wondered what he was doing talking to her. They didn't see what Jesus saw. They didn't see what Jesus saw when they looked at her. And Jesus was saying to, to them, you're looking here at this sinner woman and wonder what I'm doing talking to her, but I see her as the rep- representation of a field that is ripe for harvest. So if I am used to giving in to what my natural eyes see and my, my heart, heart and my memory bake and my flesh, interpret what I see as, to tempt me into seeking the the momentary pleasure of flesh, then I don't ever develop and grow in this ability to see what God sees. So my interpretation of things is always off. Now let me tell you this, for those who are dabbling in both worlds and they never are fully committed to either one, if I'm giving myself occasionally, not often, but occasionally, to this one over here, and I'm not I'm not really giving myself committed, that automatically diminishes my sensitivity to what God is trying to show me. I cannot be acutely sensitive to what God wants me to see if I'm constantly giving in to the flesh. And it, when I say constantly, it doesn't have to be every day. It may not even be every week. But I keep going back to that, going back to that, I am diminishing what the sensitivity to what God wants to show me over here. He wants to give me great sensitivity so I can see what he wants me to see. And what I see determines my course of direction. I can't go somewhere that I can't see where the destination is. I've got to be able to see where I'm going to get there. Yes, walking with God is one step at a time. But there's a direction to that walk. You don't take a step here and a step here and a step here and a step here. It, that's not the way, that's not a walk. Nobody walks like that. If I'm walking, I may, I may only be taking one step at a time, but I've got a destination in mind. I may not all know all the steps and how many steps and what all I'm going to encounter on those steps to get from where I am to that destination. But I, I see where I'm going. And children of God, who dabble both ways. They don't see enough of where they're supposed to be going to really be motivated to apply themselves to get there. And why? Because they're constantly undermining their own sensitivity by falling into this. this. Does God forgive us? Yes, he forgives us. Does he bring us back out of it? Yes. But we don't let the grace of God empower us to habitually walk in the spirit and follow the Spirit. That's why Jesus, uh, Paul said, excuse me, Paul said in uh, Romans 8 uh, 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So when I'm not walking in the Spirit, I'm not practicing my sonship. I'm not. And to be a son of God, and to walk with God, and to have a relationship with God, I've got to be sensitive to the voice of God. But what I see is going to affect that because God, God always—we call it a promise or a vision or whatever you call—he gives us a destination as our motivation to take the next step. And if I lose sight of that destination because I'm constantly giving in to the—and again, constant doesn't mean every day—but I'm constantly giving in to the uh, the need to pleasure the flesh. Whatever pleasure I get from sight and whatever that sight produces, I am losing my sensitivity. That destination out there becomes fuzzy in my mind. It's not clear cut. And so the acuteness of my following God is diminished because I keep falling into that. And so how many people walk, walk through, how many children of God, born again apostolics, Walk through life and don't see the lost. They don't see the lost. Oh, we know mentally they're lost. They don't believe what we believe they're lost. We, we know that. That's, that's not God. That's not the way he wants you to look at them. He wants you to look at them and see souls that need to be saved that he's willing to save. It's not his will that any should perish. That means every person we come in contact with, there is the potential in God for that person to be saved. But we got to see them like that. The the 12 disciples who were going to be the foundation of the church looked at this woman that Jesus went out of his way to walk through Samaria and see and minister to. They saw her as, ooh, what's he doing talking to her? Because most of them had been Pharisees and the Pharisees didn't have anything to do with Samaritans. And they didn't have anything, the Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans and the Pharisees didn't have anything to do with sinner Jews. And so this group was doubly separated from this woman. She was a Samaritan, and as she said in John 4, you Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. But then she also said, that. but then these Jews also had been Pharisees, and the Pharisees didn't have anything to do with sinners. That's why Jesus had to talk to Peter through a vision with that sheet let down with the unclean things in it. And showed Peter. He said, "Kill and eat." Peter said, "No, I, I've never touched anything unclean. I've never eaten anything unclean." And the Lord said, "Don't call something common and unclean that I've cleansed." Was this woman cleansed yet? No. Was Cornelius cleansed yet? No. But God saw the potential, and He wanted Peter to see the potential, and He wanted in John four He wanted the disciples to see the potentials. They're white already in the harvest. And then one more time. Hebrews chapter nine twenty eight. These are just examples, and I'm going in more depth into them than I expected to go, but the flow's there, so that's good. Uh, Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Why am I supposed to be looking to him? I, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm, I'm standing, gazing up into the heavens like they did when he ascended. That's not what he's talking about. But in here. There is a looking. It's an inner sight. It's a spiritual sight. And it's supposed to be focused. And it's supposed to have a focus. And what is that focus? To always be ready when Jesus comes. Because who is he going to appear to? He's going to appear unto them that look for him. Now, can I be focused? Can I be focused upon being prepared to be ready for Jesus to come when I'm giving in regularly to my eyes, doing things, seeing things that they should not see, and me end up doing things because of what I've seen that I should not do. No, no. So to close out this lesson, let's talk about the importance of the eye spiritually. As referenced above, one of the most important principles of life is that anything with great potential for good always has just as much potential for bad if misused, misunderstood, miscalculated, misdirected, etc. This is especially true with respect to eyes and how we use them. The devil certainly understands that our eyes make us vulnerable to temptation and that our choices about what we allow to enter our eyes are critical. These fundamental spiritual facts are easily demonstrated by considering the adversary's efforts to tempt even Jesus through his eyes. We know that when he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness, he was tempted of the devil. The Spirit led him to a place to go through these tests. And one of the key ways that the adversary tempted Jesus was through his eyes. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 4. Verses eight through ten. And again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all of the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. The Hebrew, the Greek word for showeth there means to show or to expose to the eyes. In other words, what he was seeing. Then in Luke chapter four, verses five through eight, it says this. And the devil taking him up into a uh, high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them for that it is, that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The Greek word for showed there is the same Greek word to show, to expose to the eyes. Now here's a really interesting point here. Notice the first word in Matthew 8 verse, of Matthew 4 verse 8. Again the devil taketh him into an exceeding high mountain. What do you mean again? Again what? Again? Again, because Luke 4 was the first time and Matthew 4 was the second time. And if you compare what the devil said in those two cases, you'll see he did not say the exact same thing. So we've always taught there were three temptations in wilderness. There were actually four. He repeated the second one he repeated that one twice. He repeated it, so there was the turning the stone into bread, temptation because he was hungry, the need of the flesh to eat. There was the cast your foot cast yourself out off the temple, but he promised he'd protect you. There was the temptation of trust, but twice, twice he tempted He only tempted him with needing to eat once. He only tempted him with needing to be protected and preserved once, but he tempted him with the eyes twice. The adversary tried, uh, tested Jesus's vulnerability with his eyes twice. Now. How did he pass that? Because Hebrews 5 says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he suffered. When? During those first 30 years of life. So he, during those first 30 years of life, he learned to overcome temptation and to stay and be victorious. Well, does that mean he gave in? No, but he learned how to follow and obey God. So by the time he was tested here, he'd already had victory. There was a stronghold, a spiritual, positive spiritual stronghold in his life of habitually obeying the spirit of the Father that abided in the man Christ Jesus. It was there. But I'm going to say it to you again. If Satan tempted Jesus if Satan attempted to get the man Christ Jesus, the Son of God, to fall into sin by what he appealed to him with and what he would give him if he just gave in to what he was seeing, if he did that with the man Christ Jesus, is he not going to do that with us? Absolutely he is. So, Ratio wise, I'm not making some law out of this, but ratio wise, is it not possible to say then that at least 50% of all of our temptations in life is a temptation involving the eyes? So the question then is, what are you and I going to do about that? What's the question? We are expected to learn from the temptation of Jesus that the adversary knows that we will soon serve Whatever we allow our eyes to dwell upon. Now maybe what you call serve and what God calls serve is two different things. Whatever I'm giving it, giving my will over to is what I'm serving. Either to the will of my flesh or to the will of this world or the will of the adversary. I am serving what my, what my, my choices of my soul give my will over to. If I give my will over to God, I'm serving God. If I give my will over to Flesh or, and then the world and then the adversary, I'm serving mammon and that and mammon includes everything. Flesh, world, and the, the God of this world. I'm serving those. Whatever my eyes dwell on, that's what I will eventually serve. Consequently then, whatever our eyes are allowed to dwell on will lead our minds and hearts to dwell on that also. I cannot dwell on something with my eyes without my mind and my heart also eventually dwelling on that. And whatever our minds and hearts dwell on will soon provoke us to action. I cannot dwell on something without acting on it. If I'm dwelling on things of the flesh, the world, or the adversary, I will act on that. If I'm dwelling on things of God, I will act on that. So what, I, what my eyes dwell on, eventually my heart and mind dwells on, and eventually I will act upon that. Thus the link between what we persist to see and who and what we come to worship is undeniable. It's undeniable. This is why we need to know, understand, and have the wisdom and revelation of the biblical principles that govern our eyes so that we can let them have the effect in us that God would have us to. Thank you for your time. In Jesus' name, I pray that the spirit of revelation and knowledge and wisdom and understanding on these very important biblical principles would come to you today. Jesus' name, amen.